You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Cobalt Dickens is back and fishing in universities' ponds. UNICEF scores a security own goal. We've got some Patch Tuesday notes. A look at U.S. election security offers bad news, but with some hope for improvement. The U.S. extends its state of national emergency with respect to foreign meddling in elections. And an international police sweep draws in 281 alleged BEC scammers. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. Researchers at SecureWorks report a resurgence of activity by the Iranian threat group they call Cobalt Dickens. This particular threat actor has been associated with the Mabna Group and others indicted by the U.S. Department of Justice back in 2018. Those indictments were for crimes connected with cyber espionage, that the Justice Department said was conducted on behalf of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. SecureWorks says the latest activity consists of a phishing campaign directed against American and British universities. The fish bait in the emails is, as SecureWorks put it, library-themed. The recipient is told that, quote, your library access has been suspended due to inactivity, end quote, and is given a link to follow in order to ensure that their library privileges might be restored. Cobalt Dickens's earlier campaigns had used shortened URLs in such links, the better to obscure what was going on. But this latest round dispenses with that coy gesture and simply leaves the full URL out there, displayed in all of its implausibility. Some 60 universities have experienced Cobalt Dickens' fishing, Those affected schools are located in Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Hong Kong, and Switzerland. UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Organization, knows it's a small world, and they inadvertently made it a little bit smaller by inadvertently emailing around a list of over 8,000 users of its online educational platform, Agora. This appears to be purely a case of operator headspace and timing, not hacking, So here again, the human factor contributes the dominant share of the risk. In yesterday's round of Patch Tuesday releases, Microsoft fixed 79 bugs, 17 of which Redmond classified as critical. Adobe addressed critical vulnerabilities in Flash Player. NormShield has looked at U.S. election security and found it wanting. The results of two risk assessments the company conducted showed, they say, that outdated systems remain in widespread use. 
More than half of the election systems used Windows Server 2008, release 2, and Microsoft 2S 7.5. Four of the election commissions were still using Windows 2003, which reached its end of life some time ago. They also concluded that election authorities remained susceptible to phishing attacks. 59% of the election commissions were missing DMARC records, and more than 40% of them had at least one website with an invalid or expired SSL certificate. And finally, about a third of the election commissions have, Normshield says, quote, at least one asset that is reported by blacklist databases, end quote. That is, at least one asset that has been herded into a botnet. Normshield conducted two scans, one in July, the second in August. The first one concluded that an average hacker, as Axios put it, would be able to breach 27 states' election systems. The company disclosed its findings to the election commissions and secretaries of state and then repeated their scan a month later. The August results were noticeably better. Only 13 states were found to remain vulnerable to the average attacker. The Synopsys Software Integrity Group recently published a report titled The State of Software Security in the Financial Services Industry. Drew Kilborn is Managing Director of Security Consulting at Synopsys. He joins us to share their findings. You know, one of the stats in the report was 56% of the, of the FIs that we surveyed were still experiencing uh, attacks that were resulting in system failure or downtime. That's a little shocking to me because the biggest banks we work with, um, many of those those banks have pushed uh, cyber fraud down the scale from from number one to number two or number three in their fraud list. So we kind of felt like they that the bigger banks had really gotten their arms around it. There are other findings I'll get to in a second that I think leads to this. Hmm. The the other interesting finding was that thirty eight percent reported being victims of ransomware. And I was a little shocked that, that the FIs would be um, that impacted by ransomware and that, that they would have solved that problem a long time ago. But apparently it's still out there, it's prevalent, and it's growing. So what are some of the other indicators that, that uh, you think contributes to those findings? There aren't great established processes for uh, inventorying and managing open source. And the other is there aren't great processes for managing third-party supply chain. So what you see in the largest FIs is they still buy a lot of software, either buy it or they or they outsource having it developed, and they all use open source. Hmm. In the mid-tier uh, FIs, um, it's, it's more prevalent for them to be buying third-party software than it is for them to be building software. If anything, they integrate. When you look at those two findings, I think this is kind of where the problems stem. Only 43% had an established process for inventory and managing open source. Only 15% had any tools deployed to help and aid in that. Given that open source is so prevalent uh, in the industry, that gets a little eyebrow raising that they're not taking care of that part of the problem as well as maybe they should. And they're probably introducing a lot of errors in the open source side of the house. The other interesting finding was that no one has a great process for managing supply chain of software that comes in outside of open source. Just any third party software you might buy or have built for you. And I think that's another weakness as well. Maybe there's a pen test of that software, but not many companies are looking at how the software is built and the processes and the secure SDLC that those companies are undertaking as they build software. The other interesting finding that came out of this is people still tend to rely heavily on uh, manual ethical hacking or penetration testing at the end of the process. 
In fact, 65% of the respondents said they felt pen testing was the most effective way to find security vulnerabilities. Actually, it's probably the least most effective way because it's at the very end of the cycle, right? Mm. So it's extremely costly to find your defects there. Secondly, pen testing is very time boxed. Usually it's a, a one or two week test. You can only cover so much stuff. And so it's not very thorough. And then when you started to look deeper uh, beyond that finding, you found out that only 40% of the respondents were using automated tools in their secure SDLC to do more finding of defects earlier on, things like static analysis or dynamic analysis or interactive application security testing. There's there's other mechanisms, tools you could put into the into that SDLC that would automate the finding throughout versus waiting to the tail end. If you add that up, you add up that only 19% of the respondents um, do mandatory development training uh, for the developers. You start to say, okay, we're not training our developers so they're not getting smarter about the problem. You're not finding things earlier in the life cycle, and you've limited the size of the test at the end under which you will find any vulnerabilities. You find out that, in my opinion, you're pretty inefficient at actually discovering defects in your SDLC. Automation, it provides several things. It provides consistency, which is great. It provides speed, which is, which is really good as well. And it allows you to provide governance. So now you can create some governance in the SDLC to say, if you don't cross a bar that's so high, you don't move forward. And I have a tool that's going to consistently test the same way every time to measure if you cross that bar. To me, those are the things that have to take place. And as companies move to DevOps and, and what they'll call DevSecOps and are moving faster at building and releasing software automation, it's going to become even more and more important in my mind. That's Drew Kilborn from Synopsys Software Integrity Group. The report is titled The State of Software Security in the Financial Services Industry. U.S. President Trump yesterday extended the national emergency with respect to foreign interference in or undermining public confidence in U.S. elections for one year. The note announcing the extension says, quote, Although there has been no evidence of a foreign power altering the outcomes or vote tabulation in any United States election, foreign powers have historically sought to exploit America's free and open political system, end quote. It goes on to discuss the proliferation of online devices and communication channels and concludes that both unauthorized accessing of election and campaign infrastructure and covert distribution of propaganda and disinformation warrant continuing the state of emergency. The extension maintains the provisions of Executive Order 13848, issued on September 12, 2018. That executive order prominently includes provisions for sanctioning foreign individuals and institutions attempting to meddle in U.S. elections. Charles Kupperman, Fox News reports, will serve as interim national security advisor to the U.S. president. Kupperman had been serving as deputy to the now-departed John Bolton. A search for a permanent replacement is in progress. Today is, of course, the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We spare a thought for those who were lost, injured, or bereaved in the terror, and for those whose health continues to be affected by the effects of the attacks. The government has taken the occasion to announce tighter sanctions against those who support and finance terror. Any foreign financial institution found to be engaged in such support risks losing access to the U.S. dollar and to the world financial system. Expect online investigations into money laundering and fund transfers 
on behalf of sanctioned groups. And finally, the U.S. Justice Department has announced the results of Operation Rewired, a roundup of business email compromise crooks that collared 281 alleged scammers in 10 countries. It was a multinational, multi-agency sweep. Authorities in Nigeria, Ghana, Turkey, France, Italy, Japan, Kenya, Malaysia, and the United Kingdom participated, as did the U.S. Departments of Justice, Homeland Security, State, and Treasury, along with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. $3.7 million were also seized at the conclusion of the four-month investigation. The largest haul of alleged perpetrators was in Nigeria, where 164 were arrested. 74 were picked up in the United States, 18 in Turkey, and 15 in Ghana. The remaining 10 were scooped up in various other countries. Congratulations to those who organized and conducted this cooperative effort against international crime. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, I had a couple articles come by that dealt with this notion of geofencing and the privacy implications there. There was uh, an article uh, from Think Progress. This was about uh, some Catholics in Iowa who went to church, and uh, Steve Bannon, of all people, was was, uh, tracking their phones. There's another another article from the New York Times about New York City uh, possibly banning the sale of cell phone location data. Can, Can you unwrap what's going on here for us? 
Sure. So this isn't as much of a Steve Bannon story as it is about many political campaigns and many uh, private corporations that use geofencing as a technique uh, to promote their own advertising. So how it works is you either collect from app makers or uh, the telecommunications companies themselves information on uh, which individuals were at a given location at a given time. So what the Steve Bannon article mentions is his uh, political organization collected the metadata, so uh, the phone numbers of people who were at a Catholic church service on a Sunday prior to the 2018 midterm elections. And people who were at that church ended up receiving uh, targeted advertisements on their smart devices uh, and on their apps. Hmm. Um this is something that's actually been done. Uh, it's a very common tactic among political campaigns to engage in what's called micro-targeting. Uh, if you know who's in a Catholic church or who's at a particular community meeting uh, or who's at a, potentially a political rally, that information is incredibly valuable to campaigns and political organizations. Uh, and they are happy to buy that information uh, so they can target their advertisements. They can micro-target based on what they already know about those voters. They go to Catholic Church on Sunday. New York City, interestingly, uh, its city council is considering a measure that would ban companies from selling uh, this geofencing data to uh, all firms, political firms, uh, and all other private uh, entities. I think the chances of passage of this in New York are relatively small. There's been a lot of opposition from the telecommunications companies themselves. Um, who think that this law is going to create an undue burden for them because they're going to have to figure out how to comply with New York City law, which is a limited jurisdiction, even though it's the biggest jurisdiction in the country, as opposed to only having to follow some sort of national standard. So I think the telecommunications companies and the app makers might actually be okay with some sort of regulation on selling this data, uh, but they like it to come from the national level, at the national level, so there could be some sort of uh, uniform standard. Now, this data can come from multiple places. There's there's the actual telecommunications firms. They they sell it, but then also uh, apps that you install on your device. Uh, we've heard stories of you know buried in the EULA is uh, permission for them to share your location every minute or so or something like that. Yeah, I recently read an article about uh, the Weather Channel app, which there was a controversy in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They were uh, collecting location data from their users uh, on what was alleged to be somewhat of a fraudulent basis. They said that um, users who were uh, checking local weather forecasts would not have their data sold to private uh, advertisers. It turns out it was sold. There was an investigation by the Los Angeles uh, district attorney. And, I mean, on any given smartphone, there are probably going to be 10 to 15 apps that make use of your location at, at one point or another. And we're almost so mindless about it that we just click the accept button as soon as we want to agree to that app. It's like, yeah, I don't want to read the legalese when I'm trying to send my Snapchat. Uh, the result of that is that um, you've probably agreed to, as a user... Uh, for this app to sell your uh, geolocation data. Uh, and until there's some sort of regulation in place, uh, it's up to both the users uh, to look closely at, the, at those license agreements and uh, to put pressure on the technology companies themselves. I think 
As we've seen more stories about geofencing, the telecommunications companies have been forced to respond and to to voluntarily limit uh, how much data they are actually selling to uh, companies and and political organizations. Uh, And I should also mention, you know, the uses we've talked about for this technology seem kind of benign. um, But if you take geofencing to its logical extension, it could potentially be pretty scary um, you know, if we were conducting some investigation in the war on terror and collected geolocation data for every single mosque in the country, for example, I mean, that could have both a major uh, chilling effect on free speech and the free practice of religion, but would really be a, a massive invasion of personal privacy. Um, so you can see how this would be just a major civil liberties violation. So in some ways, I think it's it's admirable that New York City is trying to address this problem. But I also think even for a city as large as New York, the problem is is at too large of a scale for them to really have a a big impact. Hmm. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.